0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated, weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Opioid abuse remains a significant problem, and as law enforcement and regulatory agencies tighten access to prescription analgesics, individuals are seeking alternatives. Loperamide is a generic name for Imodium, a commonly used medication to treat diarrhea. Initially, it was only available by prescription, but in 1982, it was made an over-the-counter medication. It's been discovered that when taken in very high doses, loperamide can produce similar effects to the opioid analgesics, and the drug is inexpensive when compared to the price of both illicit and prescription opioids. As a result, loperamide abuse has become a significant problem and has contributed to the opioid crisis we currently face. With us today to discuss loperamide abuse is Dr. Tyler Osterley, an addiction specialist and physician in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. Tyler, welcome.
1: Thank you, Daryl. Glad to be here.
0: Well, let's start by giving, maybe asking you to give an update on the opioid crisis in the U.S. Are, are things getting better? Are they getting worse, holding steady? Where are we at?
1: As you can imagine, in a, in a time of crisis like we're currently in nationwide and, and globally, things like addiction or diseases of despair, mental health illnesses, these types of things actually worsen typically during times like this. Opioid use and um, problematic opioid use is no exception. We had seen some improvements prior to the pandemic in the use, uh, at least the prescription use of opioids, and we had seen a bit of an uptick in the illicit use of uh, substances like heroin to kind of compensate for some of that. What we're seeing now in the midst of the pandemic is a decrease in treatment accessibility. So a lot of treatment programs are limiting their size. A lot of them have gone to virtual meetings, which is sometimes not what patients are looking for. So there's been some avoidance of seeking medical help. And our suspicion is that there's a bit of a a sleeping giant out there that will be uncovered once some of the concerns about the COVID-19 pandemic have diminished. So we know rates are worsening, and they're likely worse than we think because they're being hidden a bit by folks not seeking care.
0: So not good news. Well, let's talk about loperamide, What's the mechanism of action of this drug when taken in therapeutic doses?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So it's a mu opioid receptor agonist. So it works on these opioid receptors that are really in the gut. So the colon, the large intestine. And this action is usually very isolated to that region. And there's a lot of internal mechanisms that we have as humans to kind of keep it isolated some unique properties about loperamide that really make it ideal for uh, helping decrease the motility in the gut and uh, slow down the passing of fecal matter and getting it to absorb more water and, and helping with diarrhea, it's very effective for that.
0: So is it actually an opioid or is it chemically similar to an opiate? uh...
1: Chemically similar. So there's opiates and then there's the opioids, right? And so we use the term opioids to describe all things that kind of can act on these opioid receptors and kind of interact with them. And that's kind of our broad sort of umbrella term. Then there's these opiates that are traditionally been a more specific term to things that had been derived naturally from the opioid poppy. And so it's not one of those. So it's not naturally occurring within the opium poppy. So it is synthetically derived, it is actually synthetically derived from a, a common solvent. So it has a chemical structure that's a bit unique from other chemicals that work on the opioid receptors, but certainly could be described as either opioid like or an opioid. And mm-hmm. um, it's talked about in both ways.
0: All right. I've had patients who take this usually for short-term loose stools, diarrhea, but occasionally long-term for those that have inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome. I guess I wasn't aware that it crossed the blood-brain barrier and it, it had CNS effects.
1: Most of us weren't necessarily aware of this as we were going, you know, through our training and these types of things we all thought pretty safe because it's generally pretty well isolated in its effects. So normally, normal doses that uh, we prescribe and even um, the higher doses that are prescription strength are really kept pretty localized within the colon. But the issues come when folks take larger amounts, right? And they can overcome these P glycoprotein transporters in the gut that would normally, if the medicine tries to leak out, would normally shoot it right back in and keep it in its place and that's a very protective mechanism that keeps it uh, where it needs to be. But you can overcome that mechanism, right, with large amounts. And that's what folks have found over the years, that if they take a certain dose or use medications that may manipulate these p like proteins, and those transporters are also present in the blood-brain barrier too, so provide some second layer of protection. So there's a lot of hurdles to overcome in order to make this active in the central nervous system and folks have found some ways to overcome some of those hurdles.
0: So it does get into the brain when taken in excessive doses then. Correct, well, yep. How much are we talking about here compared to the therapeutic dose? What kind of excessive dosing uh, is needed?
1: There's case reports out there of people taking five to 10 times the therapeutic dose. Again, there's some manipulations that can be done with taking other medications along with it that can help, you know, manipulate that transporter, right? So that those transporters are less active and so you can take lower doses of lopiramide and still get some intoxicating effects. But they're quite large doses, doses that uh, would be very concerning for anyone well beyond what uh, is normally prescribed. So, you know, anywhere from five to ten times the normal amount or what's been reported in the literature, at least, uh, Daryl.
0: Okay. Any idea why somebody would have actually thought that this drug might produce some uh, euphoric effects or CNS effects? Uh, Why would they even consider a drug for treatment of diarrhea to simulate uh, the effects of an opiate.
1: You know, my practice every day is working with folks with addiction, and the disease of addiction can cause folks to do things that don't seem logical, you know, on face value. But they're looking for ways to manage what's going on in the brain, these, these cravings, these drives, this push that they have to use. And so one of the things that folks do is they go on the Internet and they search opioids and, and how to deal with opioids and uh, you know, what are some alternatives. And it's easy to find uh, these types of alternatives or certainly other alternatives. Folks that have some legal issues maybe that may keep them from using other opioids or they're being constantly monitored with their urines and, and traditional opioids are being closely checked for. Things like lopiramide, if their intent is to continue to get high and continue to abuse opioid substances, they can use things like lopiramide to to bypass those types of tests because loperamide mm. is not traditionally tested for in urine drug screens.
0: Interesting. Typically loperamide is used for diarrhea to slow the GI transit time and I would think that intaken in excessive doses could result in significant constipation and if that's the case, I mean if constipation is a the thing they're craving, boy they're going to love old age, but uh, <laughs> is that an issue?
1: Yes, very much an issue. Although I will say that most of these folks are used to that and because their substance of choice is typically opioids. And so opioids themselves cause a lot of constipation. And so it's not something they're unfamiliar with. Again, it's that logic or that lack of logic associated with the illness of addiction. They're willing to deal with that level of discomfort, uh, significant discomfort uh, often to get that high.
0: Well, you know, constipation then is one adverse effect, but I know there's more. There's really safety issues as well, correct?
1: Definitely. Cardiotoxicity is specifically mentioned on the warning label for lupyramide, but opioid effects. You can think of everything that folks can get uh, when you activate MU opioid receptor in the brain, respiratory depression, CNS depression, constipation, cognitive delay, cognitive impairment. All these things you can imagine um, are related to just the activation of those opioid receptors within the brain. Heart attacks, unfortunately, one of the more common causes of death, though, in uh, overdose. And so that's why I think the FDA specifically has called that out.
0: What's the typical patient profile of somebody who's taking large doses of loperamide? Are these young people who are experimenting for the first time? Are they more established drug users who are using it for financial reasons or maybe a combination of the two?
1: I feel there's probably two camps, right? There's folks that know they have a pretty significant opioid addiction and either they're looking to get off of heroin and so they're looking for an alternative to help with that, or they can't afford heroin or or their drug of choice or their opioid of choice. So that would be kind of one group looking to kind of help treat in some ways, kind of self-medicate their illness. And then there's another group that may be restricted in some way. So I work a lot with folks with buprenorphine as a treatment for their opioid use disorder. We don't see a lot of buprenorphine abuse in our country, but we see buprenorphine abuse in countries where opioids are very restricted, where it's very difficult to get an opioid. And then they'll turn to these kind of alternative measures to kind of get some opioid effect. And so when folks are completely locked in and unable to use opioids kind of on their own, but they still have the desire to use, it becomes an alternative for them to use to still still get some of those opioid effects.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you work in addiction medicine. Is, is this something you're seeing quite a bit of? I have to admit, this is relatively new to me. I wasn't aware that this was taking place. But do you see this commonly?
1: We see it in conjunction with their primary opioid illness. So we, we, as we're having conversations with patients, they'll tell us and they'll talk to us about things they've utilized to either, like I said, help get them off of, of heroin or to use while they're incarcerated or, or under some sort of legal uh, duress. So they'll talk to us about it. it. It seems fairly common. It's certainly widely known. I will say, because you've got the first override some of the effects that are occurring in the gut, that's the most dominant initial symptom. So the constipation. So rather than other opioids where the constipation kind of comes along with everything else and kind of almost comes after the high, this is just the opposite where the constipation and that stomach discomfort comes first. So most of the patients that we've talked to really dislike it and really see it as kind of a last resort uh, sort of option for them.
0: Well, I can see why individuals are taking this instead of the traditional opiates uh, for financial reasons. I, I I found one internet site selling uh, 200 capsules of loperamide for $17. And to put that many in a prescription or in, in an amount, that seems strange because yeah. the patients that I've had have just taken it for short-term problems. But I guess if you're dealing with Uh, irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease, you might fill a prescription like that. But uh, that's that's pretty inexpensive.
1: Yeah, very inexpensive. There's certainly reasons, as you're mentioning, Daryl, that the government has asked for over-the-counter boxes to be limited in their size and capacity and Those have been, as far as I know, uh, recommendations, although I know the FDA has worked with the manufacturers here in the U.S. to kind of get some structure around how those are delivered in the stores to really discourage folks from buying a lot at a time. Uh, But those, you know, obviously the Internet is the Internet, and so folks can buy all sorts of things there.
0: Has the uh, FDA or any other regulatory agency moved these from available over-the-counter to behind-the-counter, such as uh, with pseudoephedrine, or done anything to restrict the number of capsules sold?
1: The FDA has come forward and and worked with the manufacturers to limit the amount per box and then made suggestions or recommendations that um, one box per customer type of recommendations. I'm not aware, at least in state that we're in, that there's been any uh, legal things uh, applied to that. So right now it's uh, typically available over the counter. There may be states that I'm not aware of that have done some sort of uh, regulation mm-hmm. around it. But.
0: Okay. How about drug dependence? Can taking this medication in excessive doses chronically lead to a state of dependence?
1: Probably yes, but I think we're talking about chronically the very high doses, right? These doses that will overcome all these blocking mechanisms. So we're not not necessarily talking about the standard doses that we're prescribing and, and people taking as prescribed because like I said, there's a lot of mechanisms to really keep this medicine in place and, and do what it's supposed to do and keep it away from the brain, right? But allowing it access to the brain regularly. It works like other opioid um, agonists on those opioid receptors in the brain and certainly will be implicated in all the kind of the same effects uh, at those doses as other opioids.
0: I was reading about this issue and I came across an article that uh, indicated some patients are taking this to help with the opioid withdrawal syndrome. Is, is that being done very commonly?
1: Yeah, so I, I will say, medically we do this in our practice. We do use loperamide to help folks that are coming in and, and, and going through withdrawal. They can get quite dehydrated when they're going through opioid withdrawal and um, because there is a significant amount of diarrhea associated with that. And so this is a medicine that we use clinically to help with withdrawal, that, that specific symptom of withdrawal. And that, again, using as prescribed, this is a very safe medicine where we run into concerns or when we voice concerns is when we hear of patients using these higher doses to help with withdrawal to try to affect some of what might be going on in the brain. And that's where this medicine can be more dangerous in certain Mm -hmm. uh, lethal at high doses.
0: The trend has generally been uh, prescription drugs tend to come over the counter um, most of the the non-sedating antihistamines, proton pump inhibitors, um, all of those were prescription drugs at one time. At least I'm not aware of a drug going from over-the-counter to prescription category. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's even a possibility, but I would think that would help with this problem by making it prescription again. I, I don't know.
1: It would. I think that mm-hmm. certainly would be a reasonable course of action. It would restrict, obviously, access to a medicine, but allow it to be given in a, in a little bit more targeted way. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's summarize our discussion. Can you give maybe two or three key points regarding loperamide abuse and uh, its potential for causing problems?
1: just wanna emphasize that in prescription doses, this is a very safe and a very appropriate medication to give. It's not scheduled, it's not controlled like other opioids because there's a lot of internal mechanisms that we have to kind of keep it safe and make it safe. Where we get concerned are these very high doses that try to overcome these natural mechanisms that we have and can lead to either significant toxicity and even death, um, uh, but certainly also can cause the high, uh, which can lead to an addiction. And so that's really where the concern lies, is it's in these really high doses.
0: Well, we've been discussing low paramide abuse with Dr. Tyler Osterley, a psychiatrist and addiction specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Tyler, thank you for joining us today, and thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. Definitely. Thank you, Daryl. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.